Um, I, I came back uh, from the wonderful trip we had this week to, um, to really bur- burden to not just jump back into Hebrews, but to maybe have um, a, a series of messages for you this Christmas season. And uh, that's what we're going to do. And I wanted to start by just taking us to Luke chapter 2. Uh, so each of the Sundays here in December are going to, going to be um, a series of talks. And um, I want to really just address um, some, some things through, through this time. And in Luke chapter 2, we find one of the two places that gives us the, the account of the birth of Jesus. We also find it in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. But Luke chapter 2 gives us a portion of the account, and I just want to read the first seven verses. It says this, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we're familiar with uh, this account. In fact, my father read this to us every uh, Christmas morning. That was our tradition to come down, and before we touched a thing, we would read through uh, Luke chapter 2. But this week, as I read through it, there were two words that stuck out to me more than they had ever stuck out to me before. I mean, they're there, obviously. I didn't add them, but um, they stuck out to me. And the two words are, no room. Those two words. Years ago, Casting Crowns did a song called While You Were Sleeping. Um, and it, it's, it's about uh, the coming of the Savior to a world that was sleeping in the midst of it and didn't, didn't see it happen. And he speaks specifically about Bethlehem and then about Jerusalem and then specifically about the United States of, a, of America. But this is his line about Bethlehem. He says this, O, um, o little town of Bethlehem, looks like another silent night. Above your deep and dreamless sleep, a giant star lights up the sky, and while you're lying in the dark, there shines an everlasting light. For the king has left his throne and is sleeping in a manger tonight. O Bethlehem, what you have missed while you were sleeping. For God became a man and stepped into your world today. O Bethlehem, you will go down in history as a city with no room for its king. I heard that song years ago. In fact, I sang it at a church service at Grace Chapel many, many years ago. Um, and it's pretty profound. Those two words, no room, really describe more than just the city of Bethlehem. They describe our world today. There is simply no room for Jesus. People have no room in their lives for a Savior. And every year, Christmas comes around, and every year, uh, people miss it entirely, completely. 
yeah, they, they celebrate the, the, the season, but only because that's what the culture does, whatever culture they're, they're living in and in what way they celebrate that. But the vast majority of the people really have no, no idea what they're celebrating, do they? It's just another excuse to, to party, uh, to practice self-indulgence. And you add to that the, the myth and the fantasy and the, the secularization that have, has obscured the true meaning of, of Christmas. So every, every single year, people, people just miss it entirely. Even believers, even people in the church. You know, the, the origin of, of Christmas, I wanted to mention this, that the celebration of Christmas on, on 25th of December, it did first enter Western worship many, many years ago, A.D. 336. That's a few years back. But it was um, in that year that Emperor Constantine declared that Christ's birth would have an official date and have an official Roman holiday. And we don't know the exact date of Jesus' birth. We don't suspect it's actually the 25th of December. Um, we're told that there were angels in the, uh, the shepherds in the field where the angels appeared, and there probably wouldn't be shepherds in the fields in that time. Um, but why was that date uh, chosen? Well, at that time, there was a, a pagan holiday which um, celebrated the birth of the sun. It was called Saturnalia. It was a Roman, uh, Roman holiday. Um, and the celebrations were a week-long se- series of celebrations from the 19th to the 25th. It would culminate on that, and it was just a whole week of, of revelry. But many of our Christmas customs have, have originated in Saturnalia, um, but so have many customs of many other things. We just had two weddings recently, and <laughs> many of the customs in weddings today have originated from pagan cultures and customs. The celebrations of Saturnalia included things like feasting and things like parties, uh, gift giving, um, special music, lighting of, of candles, and even greenery, trees and such. But as Christianity was spreading throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the, the pagan holiday of, of Saturnalia was, was Christianized. Um, and those old pagan customs just sort of became customs in the celebration of the birth of of Jesus. And so 25th December has just endured through the centuries as uh, the date that we as Christians celebrate Christ's birth. And I'm not here to talk about and debate about the, the significance of all of that. That's the date that came down and, and, uh, and Constantine and his conversion and all that, all, all that. His intention was right. He wanted to um, get rid of paganism, pagan holidays, and celebrate um, his Savior. But let me just ask you something. If, if you or someone else who had never heard of Christmas ever at all were to just enter into this culture today, would they be able to ascertain what Christmas is really about by just what they see and they hear? Would you not just be absolutely confused? Uh, you just walk through City Center and you would see a, a myriad of things. Okay, it's about drinking. No, it's about partying. Oh, there's a little manger, but they want money. Oh, there's a, like, you, I mean, I would just be, what is this about? I don't even understand. It's so confusing. You know, even if you forget all the Santa Claus and the reindeer and the talking snowman, and all, all those things are obvious secular incursions into uh, the Christmas celebration. But what about the way movies, singers, storytellers have sort of... Um, embellished the real account of Christmas, the real account of uh, the biblical uh, birth of Christ, 
and and by those things have reduced it to even that a, a sort of a fable. I'll give you an example, and, and many of you know this, but maybe some don't. The wise men is always a great example of that, right? Because tradition has taken the innumerable wise men of Scripture, the wise men from the East, and turned them into just three, three kings. And they were three kings who visited Jesus on the night that he was born, and some of them even give them names. Well, did you know that Scripture doesn't call them kings? Scripture calls them magi, wise men from the East. Did you know that there's no indication that there were only three? Uh, That's usually just ascertain from the idea that there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there's no indication of the number. Did you know that they did not visit Jesus in that manger on the night that he was born? He, Matthew tells us that they, they came to Jerusalem, which is only a few miles from Bethlehem, but they came to Jerusalem after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and after the chief priests and scribes were gathered together to Herod to determine what prophecy said about where he'd be born. They found out he was in Bethlehem, and only then did the wise men then go and try to find Jesus. And when we do find that they find him, it says they came into the house, not into a manger. So Jesus would have been no longer in this little uh, manger. But, but all of these things have come down to us from the songs and the movies and those things, and uh, but uh, some of these things are, okay, you just take it for a grain of salt. Some things aren't so great. Where do we get talking animals in the stable from? I mean, you know, we got this kind of things, and the drummer boy, never seen him. But the, my point is this, that the true account of Jesus' birth has been squeezed out of the celebrations. And so people today do miss Christmas, and even in churches, they miss it entirely. And the people of Jesus' day missed it as well. The popular Christmas song, and we'll sing it this year, Joy to the World, it begins with this line, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. There was no room, but we're told every heart needs to prepare him room. And over the next few weeks, I want to take a a look in scripture at the people who missed Christmas, who missed the birth of of Jesus because they had no room for him. But I want to look at why. I want to look at the problems that led to their missing Christmas because I don't want anyone here to miss it. And so I've titled the series this year, Make Room for Jesus. I hope we can make room for Jesus. And I want to dive into this first with looking at the first problem that we see in in Christmas. The first problem that really causes people to, to miss it entirely, and you're well aware of this, I'm already sure, it's preoccupation. Now, this is seen in Luke's narrative. I'm not just coming up with these out of the blue, but you all kind of, I heard like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, you already know what I'm talking about. But look back at the narrative we just read in Luke chapter 2, and I just want you to remind you that there's several surprising elements of this account when you read this. No room was one of them. But when you go to verse 7, look at verse 7 again. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and It's implied she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and again, she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is a very unusual first century birth, particularly in Jewish culture. There is no way a young woman about to give birth would have been doing this on her own. And you would say, well, Joseph was there. Yeah, Joseph was a man, (laughs) 
and <laughs> probably petrified. We were to spend some time with the family that takes Ryan in under their wing. Um, uh, every once in a while, we went to see them. And uh, uh, John, the husband, delivered their last child because she, the baby came so fast. They were at the door of the hospital, but she was like, too late. <laughs> Here we come. So, you know, he was just, he's like, I'm so glad I was at the hospital because if I weren't, I probably would have ran. It's like, yes. No mention of Joseph. I'm sure he was in the vicinity, but he was not about to assist us. We're told that she was completely alone, that she swaddled him and she laid him in a manger. In Jewish culture, she would have had at least a couple of uh, women, a, a midwife, and they would have taken the baby uh, after the birth. They would have uh, cleaned him, swallowed him, presented him t- to the mother. This is such an unlikely birth. Why was no one called on to assist this young woman about to give birth? She clearly was pregnant. She's all alone, though. She had no cradle. She had no basket for the baby. She laid him in a feeding trough. And we're told because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this word inn is kataluma, and it has a range of meetings, okay? What was this inn? Was, th- was this the holiday inn? Uh, probably not. But it could have been a similar thing to a bed and breakfast. It could have been a guest room, because guest room is certainly um, tied into that meaning. It could have been something like a hostel, uh, where there have been many people gathered together in there. More specifically, a dining room, or even... As, as minimal as a lean-to shelter for a person or animals. But we're told there wasn't even room for them there. Whatever it was, there was no room for them in the inn. Now, why was there no room? I know the song said, Oh, Bethlehem, while you were sleeping, Bethlehem was not sleeping. That was not the problem. They were preoccupied. It's preoccupation. It's busyness. It's busyness. It's hecticness. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we see why they were so busy. Look what it says again. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's the emperor, folks, that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. See, it was census time. The emperor of the known world had declared that he wanted to know the vastness of his empire. He wanted to know the number of the people he ruled. And so he demanded that everybody go back to the place of their birth. Now, I don't know about you. Where would you have to travel back to get back to the place of your birth? I would have to go. She's like, well, I'm right there. I I would have to fly back to California, to to Bakersfield, California. Uh, My son, Ethan, would have to fly from Alaska down to Burbank, California, my other uh, uh, kids, luckily, are, are in a closer vicinity. They all can go back to our hometown in, in Lancaster. But my poor wife, she'd have to go to Lar, Germany, back to the place of her birth. Think about that. Think about now today, it's made easy. I just got on a plane and I fly uh, there or whatever. But, but think about that. They had to leave wherever they were and go to register their name. And it was a decree. It was a command 
from the Caesar himself. And so Bethlehem would have been anything but sleeping. The inn and every inn would have been at capacity. It would have been hectic. And we speak sometimes of the innkeeper, although did you notice there is no innkeeper mentioned? It's assumed that someone maintained the inn if there was an inn. So we can assume it's a fair uh, assumption. But why did this innkeeper uh, miss it? What happened here? He was preoccupied. He was busy. He had enough customers. He had enough people to care for. He had enough going on in his own life to worry about a young pregnant woman who needed a place to stay. The innkeeper missed Christmas entirely. He literally had no room for Jesus. But you think about the inhabitants of Bethlehem themselves. They were, they were busy you know, receiving all of, the, all of the travelers from around to be registered. This is the city of David. They would have had a lot of people there. They were trying to accommodate all of them, accommodate those who, um, who, who were going to be doing the registering, all of the Caesar's people. Bethlehem would have been manic. And so they, they missed Christmas. Here's my point. It's the same way today. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've noticed it. It's not like it just happened today. But Christmas, as long as I've been alive, has been a busy season. It's just, it's busy. There's just so much activity. There's so much going on. Not necessarily sinful activity, but there's just busyness. There's shopping. There's feasts. There's parties. You have school activities, family obligations, church activities. And all of these create just a season of, of busyness. It's actually a season of bedlam. You heard that word before? Bedlam, noise, uproar. I use that word because did you know that bedlam is a corruption of the word Bethlehem? It's true. In the 1500s, the priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem, it was a London uh, monastery. It was turned into a hospital. And then somehow, it's a longer story, became a, an insane asylum for lunatics. And people would go in there and pay a fee. It became a tourist attraction to 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 look at these insane people, and also heckle them, and just, it was, it was fun. So they went into this place to see the insane, and St. Mary of Bethlehem was shortened to just Bethlehem. In fact, actually today, it's known as Bethlehem Royal Hospital, but Bethlehem simply was shortened to Bedlam, which in that time was synonymous with a state of madness and chaos. Isn't that crazy that Bethlehem and Bedlam are historically and semantically linked it's a season of chaos. It's a season of uproar and madness. Just go to the mall. <laughs> Just get in your car and try to get into city center. Every single year, people miss it entirely due to the chaotic hustle and bustle that accompanies it. How, how many of you have ever uh, said or thought, don't put your hands up, or thought this, like, I'm all ready for Christmas? You ever heard that? I'm all, I'm all ready for Christmas. What did that mean? Or what did you mean by that? What you meant by that was like, my shopping is done. Uh, my, my, my list of uh, to-dos is done. My Christmas cards have been sent out. You, you meant your tasks for Christmas were done. I'm all ready for Christmas. Doesn't that reveal something? Christmas has become a season of to-dos. There's a perfect uh, example of preoccupation of those who are just busy found in Luke chapter 10. If you're in Luke chapter 2, just turn ahead to Luke chapter 10. You're very familiar with these two ladies, Martha and Mary. You got it. In Luke chapter 10, look at verse 38. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says this, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. We're told that she was, Martha was distracted. That word distracted is perispao, and it means to be overoccupied, to be too busy. That's what the word means. She was just flat out, preoccupied with many mundane details. What were those details? Well, they were details to celebrate Jesus. Jesus was there. They were, they were good things. But because she was so busy preparing to celebrate Jesus, she had no time for Jesus. Do you see? The decorating, the shopping, shopping the traveling, the cooking, worship and, and nativity practices for us, right? All these things. They're good things, and they're preparations to celebrate Jesus. But if we become preoccupied with those things, then they don't actually give us time with Jesus, and they defeat the purpose. See, Mary Mary made the time. Jesus was there, and so she she sat at his feet, and we're told that she was hearing his word, just listening to his word. You know, it's almost like our travel here was just a perfect introduction to the hectic, chaotic uh, month of December. We had a great, easy flight going there, even though we went past Texas to California, only to get on a flight to come back to Texas. Um, But coming back here, we took a flight from Texas to Texas. That's how big Texas is. From El Paso, Texas, we had to take a flight to Dallas, Texas, to get on an international flight. And that flight in El Paso was delayed. They wouldn't let us board, and the delay went on and went on and went on. And we knew that we only had an hour gap to get the international connection in Dallas, which, by the way, is an airport that is the size of Manhattan. And I'm not exaggerating. It is the size of Manhattan, and it's the second busiest airport in the world. So an hour we were already a little nervous about, and as the delay increased, we kind of got a little bit more nervous about it. And then all these things ensued to make it even more impossible that we would make this flight. But we landed, we were in the aisles, and I'm looking at the time like we got 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, home alone, they ran, they made the flight. (laughs) So I looked at Joey and said, you want to run? And as we ran, I'm humming the tune, run, run, Rudolph. I'm doing it in my head to inspire myself. And we ran to the gate, no joke. And literally the guy like turns and closes the door and he looks at me and goes, Flight's gone. <laughs> and I punched it. No, I, I, didn't. I didn't do that. But, but he said, no worries. There's another flight going that's a later flight, and they'll get you on that. And they did in the, in the end. Um, and I thought, oh, we're spending the night in the airport in Dallas. But, you know, just that crate. And then we get back, and then, you know, it's jet lag, and it's December 1st. It's December 1st, and I'm looking and going, oh, and Friday is a resolved Christmas party, and I've got to get ready for that. And, you know, and there's all these things, and, and Reese and I are messaging, and what about that? You know, so there's just all these things. They're all good things. But there are things that we began to be preoccupied or over 
occupied about. You know, we recognized that um, in our own lives of raising young children and recognize the culture and the Christmas manicness and, and the secularization, like how can we keep Jesus as the, at the center in our home? We really wanted to, to make that possible. And, um, and so we came up with a few traditions. I was going to share one with you. Uh, we are a family that has no problem with putting a Christmas tree in our house because we don't worship the tree. So just so you know, that's how that all works, right? That's why you could eat food sacrificed to idols, because you don't worship the idol. Paul says it's nothing. There's a tree on the stage. I didn't put that there, by the way. Um, that wasn't the point. They, they decorate the halls when we are gone. But we put up a tree, and the tree for us is, is a monument to the gift giver. He gives us such great things, because the ornaments that we put on our tree are all very precious memories of the wonderful gift that God has, has given us over the years. And I brought a few of these, and some of these are so fragile and precious, I'm just not going to let you get any closer than where you are right now. But this one right here, someone made and gave to us, and it says, Our First Christmas Together, 1994. So when this is hung on the tree, I am reminded of the great gift of my wife, the great gift of my marriage. And I look at that and go, wow, 1994, and we're still going strong. And I hang on out on there and I go, gosh, God, you are so good to give me such a wonderful wife and a beautiful marriage. We have another precious one, and this is even more fragile because it's, it's wearing away. And so it's just a little bauble here, but it has a little painted picture, hand-painted, of a little uh, child uh, sleeping there. And um, this was hand-painted by Jody's mom, Sandy. She's, a, she's an artist. Um, and this was to commemorate the, uh, the soon-to-be-born Ethan, because Jody was pregnant. He was born January 19th. And so we hang this on the tree, and we're remembering, wow, that's right. You know, this was made in honor of our first son that would come along. And each of our kids has some kind of ornament up there that reminds us of some special memory of them. We treasure those things. We have ornaments um, of of that had been given to us from family and friends, special occasions. And so when we look at these things, we hang them on there. I, I'm not worshiping the tree. I'm remembering the wonderful gifts God has given me. It's such a precious thing. But I also recognize that so many of these things, can, the lines can be blurred, and even for our kids. And so we, we set out to, to make a little bit different uh, thing. And, and, and starting in 2008, we began to get ornaments for Jesus. And the reason we did this is that while we hung things and reminded ourselves of the gift, there wasn't anything of the gift giver there. So we said, let's put ornaments that remind us of the gifts, the gift giver. And so this was the first one in 2008. It's just a, it's just a white heart, and it says love. But on the back, Jody wrote the year and said, for Jesus. And we counted, we've got 15 now that will be on the tree this year of just ornaments for Jesus. So that when we come together and we decorate these things, we have intentional things happening in our home that remind us that it's not about all the craziness that's in the world. It's not about the hectic things. Um, it's not even really all about the decorations, but it's about the great gift giver, Jesus Christ. And I don't know what you need to do, whatever you can, to bring things into your home that lessen the preoccupation of the manic and the, the secular. Now, if in case you're worried about the whole tree thing, by the way, Martin Luther, he was the first one to introduce putting candles on a tree, which I don't know why you would put a fire on a tree, but he did that. 
to celebrate Christmas, but he did it citing Isaiah 60, 13, which says, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. For him, it was something to beautify the place of the sanctuary, a place that would glorify God. We love to decorate our lounge and, and, and beautify the place, and we do it in the hopes of glorifying the great gift giver. Wonderful opportunities. So each year, these things are reminding us of wonderful things the Lord has done. Do whatever you need to combat the sin of the innkeeper, the sin of uh, the people that lived in Bethlehem, being preoccupied to the point that we just miss the true meaning of Christmas altogether. It's just so easy. And so today, just this is a very simple introduction, isn't it, to this whole series. Today, I just want to give you three things to help avoid being preoccupied, if I could. So let's just look at these real quick. The first is this. You need to be renewing your minds. Romans chapter 12, you're very familiar with this this passage, verses 1 to 2. It says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's such a great passage. It's one of the first verses I memorized in Scripture, becoming a new believer. And it was so important to, to, to show me the battlefield. We're not to be conformed to this world. That word conformed is suske matizo, long word. But it means to fashion or shape to another's pattern or mold. We're not to be pressed into the mold of the world, pressed into their fashion. The world and the culture want us to look like them. And listen, if you do nothing, if you just kind of go along, you are being conformed. You must avoid being conformed. It's the conforming of the mind. It's our way of thinking. That's what's being conformed. And if we don't do anything, our way of thinking will be entirely secular. But we must have a biblical way of thinking. We must establish a biblical worldview. How do we do that? Well, the verse tells us that we need a transformation. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. That word transform is where we get metamorphosis from, like the the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly, a, a change that must take place. There must be something that happens. How are we transformed? Well, there were some back in the day who thought that if they just hid away from the world, they hid away in caves or went into monasteries, that they could emerge a beautiful butterfly. It doesn't work that way. We don't hide ourselves away in our own little made cocoons and emerge something new. That's not how transformation takes place. We're told instead to renew our minds. Transformation only occurs as the Holy Spirit changes our thinking changes our minds. And that only happens through the study and the meditation of his word. Do you know that? You, a believer today, you have been transformed. That has happened because there's no way you can be a believer in Jesus Christ and not have a renewed mind. 
the understanding of what has our condition and what Christ has done, the understanding that, that must be there to make that change takes place can only happen by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to enact that change. We need a, a renewing of our minds. And you know what? A constant renewing of our minds. Yeah, there's an initial one that makes that transformation take place. But do you know that you stay away from renewing your mind long enough? You start to think more like the world. You've got to constantly be renewing your mind. It's a constant thing. I want to be renewed constantly. Otherwise, I'll be become preoccupied with the things of the world. That's the first step. The second thing we need is to have to, to elevate our minds. You need to be elevating your minds. What do I mean by that, elevating your minds? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, it says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That was the second verse that I memorized as a young believer. I was obviously discipled, and someone was trying to help me along here. First, transform your mind. If you don't, the world is going to conform you into the Plato pattern of the world. Transformation must take place. But then you must elevate your mind. We don't meditate on the things of the world. Set your mind on things above. You know there's a lot of meditating on the things of the world even during COVID. There was a lot. And we're to be not focusing on the things of the world. I don't care what's going on here. We need to elevate our minds and set them on things above. That set your mind means to think or to direct your thinking or have an inner disposition. My inner disposition isn't aligned to the world. My, my, my compass doesn't point to the world. It points upward. We must direct our thoughts to eternal, heavenly things, heavenly realities. Why? This world is not our home, and aren't you glad? <laughs> We're not staying here, folks. Don't make your bed here. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20 says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. He says, you know, follow our example. We set a pattern for you. You just follow our example. We're to follow others as they follow Christ. We are to follow that uh, pattern, but looking unto Jesus. But he gives us the example of those who don't. What happens? Well, they're just fascinated by the things of the world. Their, their belly is their God. They glory in their shame. They set their mind, what? On earthly things, he says. But he reminds us where our citizenship is. It's in heaven. It isn't here. He's like, remember where you belong. Yes, I, have, I almost have dual citizenship. British citizenship, American citizenship. I don't care about either of those. Heavenly citizenship is what I care about. Have our thoughts constantly directed to... To, to earthly things, if you're doing that all the time, that's called living according to the flesh. Paul's, not my word, Paul's words. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit 
things of the Spirit. You see, setting your mind on things above is living according to the Spirit. That's what the Spirit wants you to meditate on, not on the things of the world. Where the Spirit is, there is Christ also. You want to keep Christ at the center? Well, then meditate on things that are above, where Christ is, we're told. That's where he is. He's not here. He's there, waiting for us, preparing a place for us. We need to make room for Jesus. The third thing that can help you overcome preoccupation, and I'm going to close with this today, even though I prepared more, we'll do a part two next week, is to guard your minds, guarding your minds. How do we do that? Well, we need the peace of God because this world doesn't offer that. You can go to the town and you can hear the songs about peace, but there's no peace there. The world has no peace. There's no peace to be offered or found in the world, let me tell you, at all. There's none. You need the peace of God. There's a lot of people who might have peaceful homes, but they don't have the peace of God. The peace of God is completely different. And when you read scripture, just do a word search and look at the peace of God. It's all over the place. There is only one peace of God, and there's only one God of peace, the God of the Bible. How many times do you see our New Testament authors end or begin with grace and peace be with you? It's coming from the God of peace. We need his peace because we live in a chaotic world. So how do we get it? Philippians 4, you probably knew I was going there. Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. There it comes, right? Then the peace of God comes to you. The peace of God surpasses all understanding. You don't get the peace of God in the world. You don't get it through worldly means. You don't get it through worldly meditations. You don't get it through yoga. You don't get through any of those things. You need the peace of God because the peace of God, and there it is at the end, will guard your hearts and minds. How do you guard your hearts and minds? That's it. It's the peace of God. So how does that come to you? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, like we were given earlier today. Quiet, meditative, prayer, time with God. You know, Mary made time for Jesus. She, she sat peaceably with Jesus at his feet with no concern for the details of the celebration. Martha, she was more concerned about the details than about the deity that was in her home. Be concerned about that. We are celebrating the coming of God, God with us. And we can so easily distract our own kids from that reality, not intentionally, we're not worshiping wrong things just by being preoccupied, by being busy. So this was on my heart as I was flying on this plane that we were crammed onto. That wasn't our original flight. Coming back here, re- remembering I just ran through an airport and going, oh, it's already crazy season. Why am I thinking that's going to be crazy season? This shouldn't be a crazy season for Christians. It shouldn't be chaotic for Christians. Peace, joy. I want to celebrate that with you. So a couple of commitments I'm going to make here today, and you can hold me to it. I'm one that does like details. I'm one that sometimes can overemphasize details, and I want things to be perfect because I love you, and I want things to be nice and be good. And so I'll be at the Christmas luncheon, and I'll be running around doing all kinds of things to make sure that goes well. I'm not applying myself to anything but to be there because I want to be with you. 
I'm going to have conversations with you. I'm going to sit at a table with you. I'm going to have a loving fellowship time with you. We'll have things. We'll have things for the kids. We'll have the things like we normally do, but I, I, I want to be with you. I love the time with the kids on, on, on Friday as well. That was so good, you know, but I'm finding like I'm going from one game to the next game to the next game. I'd rather just sit and get to know the kids more. I'm sure they love the games, but I'm, I'm thinking some of them probably would like that too. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like, you think they're that likable? I don't know. I want to commit in any way I can to encourage the activities that we're doing because they're all good. I can't wait for the nativity. I love the things their kids are doing to that for that. I, I hope that we can encourage uh, them in their efforts, but also that we would encourage them in the reason that they're doing it, that it would bring glory to God and that it would edify the body of Christ. So let's, as a church family, we're a family, just encourage one another to avoid the preoccupation with the chaos and the busyness and the mundane and the secular, and let's make Christ the center. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let me pray. Mm. Thank you, Lord, for your, your word to us today. Thank you for laying upon my heart the things that we, we need to be reminded of, Lord. Uh, so easy to get caught up in uh, how the world wants to do these things and how the world wants to run things. And Lord, uh, we don't want to be a, a busy and chaotic people who are distracted with many things, troubled and anxious with many things as the Martha was, but we want to be as Mary was and sit at your feet, drinking in the sweetness that comes from you. Lord, we do love you. We do praise you. And we know that we're not perfect. We're, we're just your people. You've saved us. We have a much uh, sanctification to undergo. I know that. But Lord, help us to do this together. Help us to just encourage one another to make this Christmas season, really, really a celebration of you. God with us coming into this world. Help us to be filled with peace and joy. Help us to transform our minds and renew them daily in your word, Lord, to elevate our thoughts above the things of this world to to heavenly realities and to guard ourselves from the chaos of this world by spending time with you in prayer and in praise. We love you. Praise you for all that you are, all that you do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Would you stand with